This is an ABC podcast. It was the 70s. Tor Clevier was 22, and he was feeling adrift in life. His mother had died a year earlier, and now he was travelling through Europe. And on the way back through to Australia, I was alone and feeling pretty lonely and lacking purpose and meaning in life. So you were at sort of an emotional crossroads, I guess. Yeah, I think like many young people, I was very disillusioned with society. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. One day in the Netherlands, just on the streets, he met some friendly people from a church. Yeah, they did a lot of recruiting out on the street and they'd pass Mm. out literature and talk to people. And I met them in that context. Right. And then it wasn't a typical church. So we would go back to a coffee shop and they would have performances and things on the weekends in the evenings. Mm. And it was all very exciting. Yeah. So did you just think you were joining a group of young Christian people or, you know, like, was it a youth group kind of thing that you thought you were joining? Yeah, they put themselves forward as being Christian missionaries with a difference. And yeah, when I met them, they were the most wonderful pseudo family, very loving and caring. And uh, it was like joining a drugless hippie commune, if you like. (laughs) It was great. Tara didn't know it yet, but what he had in fact joined was a cult. And he'd spend the next 11 years of his life with them. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Popular culture is endlessly fascinated and freaked out by cults. They've been the subject of books, films, TV, and yes, podcasts, with no shortage of real-world stories to borrow from. It's a psychological fascination. It's this kind of almost shock that this can happen to people, Mm -hmm. that, that people can end up in these communities where they act against their own interests and in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. And you may not want to believe it, but any one of us could end up in a cult. Because, as it's often said, nobody sets out to join a cult. Nobody's joining a cult. They're just coming across a group that looks great from the outset. We hear the same rhetoric from the public a lot of times when we talk about domestic abuse. It's like, why didn't he, she leave that? And that's exactly the same in cults. So today, how cults reel people in, how they keep them there, and what it takes to get out. It's like a human dynamic that keeps happening Mm. all over the place, across different societies, no matter the kind of cultural background. It's traumatising so many people, and I don't think we're doing enough about it. The first months, I suppose, were just like heaven. I'd never been so loved and appreciated in my life. Um, People give you lots of group hugs and, yeah, a lot of affirmation that you were special. That's why God had called you to this. It's been nearly 40 years since Torah left his cult, which was called the Children of God. And he's now a counsellor specialising in helping other people who've left cults. I'm also the president of Cult Information Family Support Incorporated. He says after that initial honeymoon period, things became, as you might guess, increasingly controlled. It was a communal-based 24 hours a day commune with a pyramid leadership structure so that everyone had oversight. So there was behaviour control. We couldn't read or watch TV. Our time was very controlled. We were always kept busy. And uh, yeah, to think about things was uh, considered to be doubting. And then the belief system started to morph. 
I was introduced more into following our prophet rather than what I thought the Bible was. Mm -hmm. Things such as just weigh out prophecies that he would come out with. He came out with a prophecy that heaven was in the moon. And then there was a lot of uh, things about child discipline and, and things like that that he would put in his writing. And so how many years in did you first first start to think about leaving? I started thinking about leaving probably probably after the first two years in the group. Oh, wow. And different things came about. I, I had met my wife in the group and she was more dedicated than me at the time. And we had, we had one child, so I overlooked a lot of things. Mm. And in the end, what finally made you decide to leave? Uh, it was an increasing in uh, pressure to comply. The group went through different different revolutions or times when it would get really tight and a real scrutiny around obedience and that sort of thing. And the year before we left, it got really intense. It can only be explained as an intense brainwashing situation where wow. we were continually scrutinised, continually belittled, continually put down. And then I suppose what brought my wife to the point of wanting to leave was just seeing the life that our children would have if yeah. we stayed there. Yeah. After 11 years in the cult, Tora left with his family. But if you did the math, that still means he had nine years where he stayed despite increasing doubt. We'll talk about why and the controlling tactics that were used to keep him there in a bit more detail in a moment. But first, I want to go back to the beginning. In many ways, Torah's entry into cult life was textbook. When you think that people who join cults are just uneducated or gullible or whatever it is, I think what you don't understand is that often they're at a vulnerable point in their life. This is Sarah Steele. She spent the past five years researching cults and speaking to people who've left for her podcast called All About Sex. That's S-E-C-T-S, just to be clear. She's also just written a book on the topic called Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. So they might have come out of a long-term relationship. They might have had a death of someone close to them. It could be they're moving out of home and then going to university. It's just at a point where you're reassessing your life. You're like, what am I? I'm ready to dedicate myself to something What's it going to be? And you come across the wrong group at the wrong time. And every single one of us has a vulnerable point in our lives. We're lucky if we only have one. We have a bunch. All of us have <laughs> many vulnerable points in our lives. And I honestly, the, the more that I've researched this topic and the more people I've spoken to, the more I've come to believe it could happen to any one of us. And I know people don't want to believe that. They want to believe that they would never end up in a group like this. That's something I used to believe for mm. sure. Because also I'm, I'm not religious myself, right? And I thought a lot of it was religion-based. But there's cults I've looked at that, for instance, Zendik Farm in America it was uh, an organic farming commune. It was like about rejecting capitalism, kind of a, a little bit free love, but, you know, not in the 60s. This was in the 90s. And a lot of what they taught... That could be really appealing to someone who, you know, I think a rejection of capitalism is something that a lot of us <laughs> find appealing. And there's a guy I also spoke to in America who was in a cult called Chung Mu Kwan. That was a martial arts school, right? All that guy did was go to a martial arts class as a teenager and he ended up in a cult. Wow. So this is the thing. It's like nobody is joining a cult, right? All yeah. they're doing is looking for a community of some kind. And often it's 
you get involved in the outer layers and it's not until you get mm. kind of really seduced into the centre that it becomes really culty. Right. And actually, like, the, the types of people who join cults, often it's because they really want to give something of themselves to something greater than themselves or they really want to work on themselves and, you know, improve themselves in some way. And these are really great qualities. Yeah. Really great qualities. You would hope that most people would have these qualities. And that's one of the most devastating things about cults is the number of wonderful people in them who are working so hard and dedicating themselves to something that isn't having an impact in the world when they could actually be having a really great impact in the world. And so I find that, I think that's just one of the most <laughs> depressing things about them. How cults manage to get people to stay in them for as long as they do is the result of a number of controlling tactics. Torah described how in The Children of God, there was intense control over what members did and what information they had access to, members were belittled, and they were cut off from family and friends outside the group. What he describes is essentially coercive control. That's a term you might have heard associated with domestic violence. It's been in the news recently, as some states and territories move towards criminalizing it. And we have put forward a paper that argues that cults should also be included in this coercive uh, thing because it's almost line by line with cults and domestic abuse. So you have the in love period where usually the abuser lavishes the other party with all kinds of love and gifts and tells them they're special and then moves to gradually undermine who the other person is. They'll start to control the person's time, their company, money, the bank balances, and cults to varying degrees do a similar thing. And we hear the same rhetoric from the public a lot of times when we talk about domestic abuse. And it's like, why didn't he, she leave that mm. when they were being, being abused and life was so painful? Why didn't they leave? And that's exactly the same in cults. People can be under huge um, abuse and they won't leave because they're being disempowered. They're being, uh, being taken down a road where they don't believe they can really survive on the outside by themselves and their confidence has been undermined and they feel they don't have a voice and they're afraid of the outside world. Wow. So, I mean, cult leaders, it sounds like, are basically domestic abusers on a larger scale. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a very good good way to um, to look at it. Jess Hill, in her book, See What You Made Me Do, she, she speaks about the spectrum of coercive control where you've got domestic relationships on one end and, you know, totalitarian governments on the other end wow. and cults are somewhere in the middle. And it totally makes sense to me. It's, you see all of these same, same kinds of things like restrictions on media, us and their mentality, the propaganda <laughs> mechanisms, like it's, it's systematically abusive behaviour. It's really tricky because obviously freedom of religion and freedom to believe what you want to believe is really important, right? That That is shouldn't be messed with. But I think a lot of the people who kind of push the freedom flag at all costs are not recognising that these groups, what they're doing is taking away people's freedom. Mm. So I kind of look at it like, um, is it the the paradox of intolerance, right? You can't tolerate the intolerant, otherwise intolerance wins. <laughs> it's like the paradox of freedom. You should have freedom to believe whatever you want to believe, but you shouldn't have the freedom to <laughs> take someone's freedom away. Mm -hmm. And so there are some really tricky lines, but I do think that what's being looked at around coercive control is a, is a pretty big opportunity to say, actually, this behaviour that puts so many limitations on people's lives is a problem. And 
we should be looking at those laws in terms of cults as well. One thing with being in a cult, Mm -hmm. and one of the most damaging things for people, is that you are never right and you can never question. Mm -hmm. So you can be accused of something by leadership and you cannot defend yourself. If you say, no, I didn't do that, they will come back and say, well, God told me that you did or you must have done something that you need to repent for. So, And and don't justify yourself because to justify yourself for any accusation was sort of the worst sin that you could that you could do and it's a very very common thing in in cults to be put into that double bind where you have no voice and no rights wow just hearing you explain that it's it sounds terrifying like a terrifying trapped position to be in what does that do to a person's psyche and their mind and their sense of self to be in that position especially for so many years Um, That is the number one sort of cause of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, We have fight, flight and freeze. So if you can fight back, you tend to come out of these things a bit better. If you can run away, you tend to come out of these things a bit better because you you have had autonomy. You have done something to prevent this happening. Hmm. When you freeze, there's this... um, push-pull, handbrake on with engine revving that sort of tears you apart on the inside and it it leaves a person feeling really powerless. Um, yeah. So there's a collection of behaviours that fall into the course of control basket. Then there are a few other characteristics you tend to find in cults as well. Things like in-group language, right? And this isn't just, you know, using acronyms to make an easy reference to something that is a complicated word to say. It's more like another term for it is thought-terminating cliché. So if the language kind of takes certain concepts and distills them down to something that you're just not supposed to do, like that's a bad thing. Mm. So, for instance, in Zendik Farm you might get criticised for running your own show. And everyone in Zendik Farm would know what that meant, kind of showing independent initiative. You were doing something that you were interested in yourself. What a crime. What a crime, right? (laughs) But that just became immediately like, oh, I must shut down Mm. that behaviour. Like, that's something that's not okay. And so in-group language is one, for instance. Mm -hmm. I'd say exploitative labour happens in a lot of these groups. Yeah, that seems to be a hallmark when you hear about cults, that that's going on. Yeah. And, you know, volunteering your time for something can be a wonderful thing to do. It's not straight away like a red flag necessarily. But if if you're in a group that has like heaps of wealth and is still using members Mm. to do free labour, but it's actually just lining the pockets of those at the top in some way, Mm -hmm. you know, why is that going on? Mm -hmm. But also like intense schedules, like keeping people busy all of the time is a really good way of kind of shutting down critical faculties. Yeah, right. Um, limiting people's sleep, that's super common. I've come across so many leaders who say that they only need four hours sleep a night or three hours sleep a night (laughs) to encourage their followers to do the same. Because if if you're not getting enough sleep, your critical faculties are Mm -hmm. quite dulled as well. And also limitations on food, that's the same sort of thing. Okay. So there are a few of these things that are really, at their heart, they become about undermining someone's kind of mental well-being in such a way that they're not going to ask too many questions and not be thinking at full capacity about what they're doing and why they're involved in this group and whether it's the right thing for them. 
These tactics don't just lead people down a dangerous and damaging path, they often lead down an absurd one too. Here's just one example from the martial arts group Sarah mentioned earlier. The leader, John C. Kim his name was, he said that he could jump off six-storey buildings and all of these fantastical things. And there is an example that Russ, who I interviewed, he gave me of John C. Kim sitting in front of the class, slapping his arm and saying to the class, look, I'm making my arm grow. Can you see my arm grow? And everyone around him was saying, yes, it's amazing. And he was saying, yes, it's amazing, even though he knew that he couldn't see anything happening. And he and the others would go away and tell the students they saw John C. Kim grow his arm. That's incredible. Because it was just, they were so invested in this group. So there are so many individuals who in these scenarios, in their mind, they're thinking this isn't quite right, but Mm. they feel like they're the only one. And their sense of self-worth has usually been undermined so much that their programmed reaction is to disbelieve their own intuition. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Cults might all exhibit similar behaviours, but sometimes there can be a grey area between a cult-like group, a group that's perhaps a bit odd, a bit overly devoted to their cause, and a full-blown actual cult. I think one that people come across a lot is multi-level marketing. That's one that most of us have had a, a brush with before, mm. whether a friend or family member or something. My parents, I remember once briefly, yes, oh, in the yeah. 90s, starting with an MLM, but uh, they Good didn't get too deep in it. Uh, Glad to hear it. Yeah, um, but yes, yeah, a lot of people have had a brush with that. That's right. Yeah, and, and a lot of the methods that these multi-level marketing companies use are like they're feeding off of a cult kind of dynamic. They want to create a cult-like following. Like the love bombing when someone gets involved at first, you can't criticize, there's no criticism, there's Mm -hmm. no questioning. It's like you have to be positive all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you don't manifest positivity, then it's your fault if you don't end up making the money that they told you you were going to make. How do you know when that crosses over into a cult though? So because you can have MLMs that operate Mm -hmm. and are about positive thinking and it might be annoying and put all the burden on you. But when does that cross over into cult territory? How would you know? Yeah, it's a tricky question. And I I would suggest that there are a number of MLMs out there that are essentially cults. Right. If you really drill down into them, it, it's a cult. It's got this leadership at the top who is exploiting those beneath them in order to make money. And I think that, you know, there are also a lot of self-help groups that are tipping over into cult territory that it can be tricky to talk about some of them because... Mm. There are a few pretty litigious groups out there. In Australia, defamation laws make it particularly difficult. That's absolutely right. And so I don't think that it's actually such a, a clear line. I mm. think sometimes they, they are actually tipping over into yeah, right. cult territory. And in terms of cult-like behaviour in the wider world, what about, you know, the cult of personalities that we see with certain leaders of, of certain businesses and that kind of thing? Yeah, well, yeah, I think that there are businesses that, you know, potentially operated as cults. There are a few, like if you look at startup culture in America, I think there's quite a few (laughs) over there. But people who worked for Elizabeth Holmes in her organisation in Theranos, they Mm -hmm. they compared it to a cult Mm -hmm. a few times. And I think WeWork was compared quite a few times by employees to being a cult. And I think the business operates in such a way that they're, you know, taking all of your time. The leader does not take any criticism. You're supposed to adore them. They're they're creating this cult of personality around them. You know, those are a few red flags for sure. 
let's get back to Tora Clevier's story. When he first joined his religious cult, Children of God, he was feeling adrift in life. When he left in 1984, he was adrift again. They, um, they say that leaving a cult is like being a spiritual refugee. And in my case, it was exactly like that. It, it was a huge, tumultuous experience where we had left everything that we knew, all our friends. They had become our family. They had become our work. They had become our everything. And we left to come back to Australia. Uh, we didn't know how anything worked. We didn't have a credit rating. We didn't have a, a, any any um, knowledge of how to get around in society. We were out of touch with, with cultural norms, such as sporting stars, music, news, current affairs, all mm. of that sort of stuff. So it was a, a huge gap to fill. Yeah. How long do you think it took you to adapt to mainstream life and heal? Or is that like still an ongoing process? Um. In, in some senses, you never fully get over these things. It's a bit like uh, loss and grief mm. that um, if you lose a loved one, you move on to a point where you're functioning well, but it's always there in the back of your mind. So mm. I suppose it took 10 years for me, for sure, to really start functioning well again. Wow. I, I really did struggle and brought a lot of my cult beliefs back into society, such as the strict disciplining of children and the belief, the belief, well, black and white thinking was a huge one I had to get over. You're trained to think in terms of black and white, us and them, right and wrong. There's an irony to Tora's recovery story, though. He might be a counsellor now for people who've left cults, but when he left, he refused to go to counselling. My wife thinks it's a little strange that I'm a counsellor that would never go to counselling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I had a very, uh, a very strong aversion to authority figures when I left. And I remember just feeling very nervous and apprehensive, uh, just going into the office of someone sitting behind a desk. And um, I felt very uncomfortable about anyone who I thought had an education, any, any professionals. So instead, he became a voracious reader of self-help books. I think it was my, my wife. I read so many self-help books. She said, why don't you formalise <laughs> this and, 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 and go and get some formal training? So, mm. um, so that's what I did. Is it harder for people to leave religious cults, do you think? Because, you know, it's not just their lifestyle and, and, and friends they lose. It's also the wrath of God hanging over them. That's the threat. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, there's there's a lot of fear involved and there's phobia indoctrination for people who are in these groups as well, that if you leave, you're leaving God's best and highest will for you and anything can happen. I spoke to one guy who used to carry a baseball bat around in his car after he left a cult because he wanted to defend himself when God sent someone to get him. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, one interesting thing is that often groups that aren't religious at the outset they actually end up being religious towards the end. Mm -hmm. Whether or not the, the leader says that they have a line to God or, you know, are the voice of Jesus or if it's not God or Jesus, maybe they are in touch with the source. But they are your key to salvation in the end, even if the group was nothing to do with religion to start with. Why do they end up there? I think they end up there because the more you try to assert control over people, the more you end up kind of backing yourself into a corner where 
you try to stop them from asking you any questions. <laughs> they keep asking questions, you know. Eventually, you figure out the best way to stop them questioning is to say that I am God or I have aligned to God because there's no higher authority than that. Yeah. How how do you begin to like rebuild a person's life with them when they've gone through that kind of thing? Like, can you take me a little bit on the counseling journey? How do you, how do you help these people? Um, information is a big one. I'll give them information to read if they're a reader or I'll send them videos to learn how cults work because that gives them a lot of security that they might be caught up in these things again. And it also alleviates a lot of guilt and blame from them because as they see how the manipulation process works, they tend to understand that it really could happen to anyone and that it's not because they're stupid. Uh, Yeah, they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And from there, people really need to be heard. People need to tell their story in a safe space. And that in itself is very therapeutic. And are cults essentially the same as they were in the 60s and 70s, or are they quite different these days? Uh, The... Operation of cults seems the same. I often say that you don't need to know about every cult. You just need to know about how they operate and they're all controlling in the same manner. Things have changed, though. There seems to be more of a prevalence now towards meditation-style groups and gurus, Mm. whereas before it seemed to be more mainstream religious kind of approaches like Jonestown and things like that. Mm. That's interesting that you say that they're essentially all the same. Why is that the case and how do, like, I always wonder, how do cult leaders know the methods of control to use? Like, where do they learn the stuff? How, why is it all the same and how do they know? <laughs> that is really a good question mm. because we often wonder if they all go to cult leader training yeah. seminar or seminary or something. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be a basic pattern of narcissism. It seems to have an innate ability to control other people uh, and exploit a need. Do cult leaders ever leave? Like, do they ever see the error of their ways? Have you ever come across that? I have never actually come across that, and I I doubt it. I don't think I've ever heard of any cult leader who's ever seen the error of their ways. I think it goes along with narcissism that they're not very introspective and, um, yeah, and not very empathic. Mm. I'm not a psychologist, so, you know, I'm very careful about what to say about these types of things. But um, there is a psychologist called uh, Daniel Shaw who who reckons that most cult leaders exhibit a very certain type of narcissism. He calls it the traumatising narcissist. Mm. It's like all of these people, when they're faced with the, the trauma that they've caused others, they seem to find it really easy to just brush that off as if it's not a problem whatsoever. Mm. They frame themselves as being persecuted whenever this criticism comes up. It's always that person has gone to the devil, <laughs> wow. you know, we're being persecuted, we're being attacked, the media is now out to get us. Mm. What, what do you think society still fails to understand or misunderstands about people who join cults? Like, are there any myths out there that you think are worth busting? I think people generally think it could never happen to me because I'm too smart. When there's more intelligent people that are recruited into cults than people that aren't intelligent, for instance. It's, it's more to do with a person's idealism and neediness than it is to do with any kind of intelligence. The need to belong, the need to have purpose, security. And these are all needs that are increasing at a huge rate in today's society. Why is that, do you think? 
Just with the disruptions we see in society that create fear and panic, uh, things like COVID, things like world wars, things like uh, the interest rates going up, all of these things tend to destabilise people and make people want to bind together. As, as humans, we tend to want to bind into groups if we, we feel threatened. So I tend to think that um, people, people really need to recognise their vulnerability. Has counselling others helped you process your, you know, your own experiences? Or what does counselling others who've been th- through this do for you now? It does, it does help me process it. And I'm always learning from my clients and the, the way that they view the world. I suppose I've learned a lot more about second generation hmm. people and the, the discomfort they feel with first generation people because they see their parents as the enemy hmm. when their parents were also victims of abuse. So we've got this generational abuse thing that happens as well, which is really difficult to manage. Like, where does blame stop? To what extent is a person guilty when they've been led to believe that they're doing things in the best interests of others? And I don't think there's any real easy answer. The the ultimate guilt lies with the cult leader, but Mm -hmm. still, like with uh, Nazi Germany, the, the guilt still goes down to the people who obeyed yeah. the orders. That's Tora Clevier, counsellor and former cult member. You also heard from Sarah Steele, author of Do As I Say. And that's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producer Jennifer Leake and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.